This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. My personal adventures in oarsmanship began in sleek skull boats on Mirror Pond in downtown Bend, Oregon. My parents were fond of athletic activities that uh, started really early in the morning. And I loathe the pre-dawn ass on curb for skiing, swimming, and tennis, but rowing was the exception. Gliding through the glassy waters of the Deschutes River before the town began to stir was an ethereal experience. And little did I know, I was developing a skill that would literally and figuratively carry me for the rest of my days. By my late teens, I was navigating whitewater throughout Oregon and fully ingrained in river life, which took me down a rabbit hole that I've yet to climb out of. Throughout my journey, one brand of oars has always been in the locks. The name Sawyer is synonymous with river life, and I didn't argue when my wife suggested this name for our firstborn son. Our guest today is the Northwest Territory Manager for Sawyer Oars and Paddles. Derek Young, welcome to the February Room. Good morning. Well, thanks for joining us, man. Um, we like to start things off here with a uh, personal account from one of your watery adventures. Do you have a tale teed up for us? <laughs> well, your intro kind of made me flashback just, you know, briefly to the first time that I went on a an overnight whitewater trip with my family when I was 12 years old down the San Juan River. And uh, 
you know, that was my first experience just, you know, put it, pushing off on a boat and, you know, being on the water for, for days at a time. And, you know, while I was very familiar with water as a competitive swimmer when I was growing up, uh, you know, having everything that you needed and everything you had with you as you floated down the river was, was quite the experience. And, uh, I mean, just really got the bug for white water and spending my life on the water, you know, all the way back then, that would have been, I guess, I guess, 1983 at this point. Um, I still got that old Udisco bucket boat from, from that trip. So. Oh, nice. That, that's what we had too. When I was a yeah. kid. That's what my dad had. Yeah. <laughs> Those metal valves that, you know, just always nailed you in the wrong, in the wrong opportunity. Right. Uh, but I think one of the, probably the most memorable, and it's, a, it's a story I tell all the time parts of this trip is, um, you know, we parked our family station wagon at, uh, Mexican hat at the takeout and, you know, about, I guess about a mile above the takeout. Um, there was a couple of, there was a, a man and a woman walking, uh, up the river on the, on river, right. And they were both naked. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really weird and couldn't figure <laughs> out, couldn't figure out why they're walking up, walking up the river naked. And we got to the, we got to the takeout and lo and behold, uh, someone had broken into my mom's station wagon, they busted out a window and laid the back seats down and all of their clothes were strewn out. You know, at, at 12 years old, <laughs> at 12 years old, I really didn't understand what that was all about, but, uh, yeah, it was. I just remember my mom's disgust about <laughs> having her station, having her station wagon being desecrated like that after her trip. <laughs> uh, just you never know what you're going. You never know what you're going to get when you're on the water. Oh right, uh, yeah. That's uh, well. At least it wasn't Dirty Mike and the boys. True. That's right. True. <laughs> oh man, what a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've, I mean, since, you know, since then, I've, I can think of hundreds of, you know, hundreds of events and things that have happened on the water. But, uh, you know, it's always some of these things that kind of stick with you. The first, the things that happen for the first time are kind of the things that stick with you. Oh, boy, did she keep the station wagon or just oh, set on no. fire? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, we called that thing the safety mobile. And, uh, no, it was quickly gone out of, that, out of the, out of the stable of cars. Yeah. <laughs> so did it have a, uh, did it have a uh, a trailer hitch on it, or did you did you just uh, fold everything up and throw it in the back? Oh yeah, back then. I mean, I don't. You know, we didn't have trailers. We just folded that raft up and threw everything on the top and tied it down. And um, I remember driving home from from Mexican Hat all the way to Albuquerque, where I lived at the time. Um, you know, with a broken rear window and a towel just kind of flapping in the wind, looking out of it, going, "Gosh, when can I get back on the river again?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had a uh, we had a suburban. That was our family adventure vehicle, mm. um, and nice. yeah, same yeah. deal. Just everything, you know, strapped on top, tied to the sides. Um, just any any space. No no space was wasted trying to cram everything for a multi day trip into that rig. Well, so you uh, you've been a, a, a you were a professional or a competitive swimmer, as you mentioned. Up until what age did you did you compete in swimming? Oh gosh, uh, I think until I was about well, not not much longer after that, I, I actually stopped competitive swimming because I think my relationship with water just changed a little bit. Um, you know, I wanted to do um, less, uh, you know, less fighting against it in terms of a stroke and more working with it on a boat. So I, I quit competitive swimming not too much longer after that, but. I've always kept that connection to water. So 
Um, yeah, I, I still swim occasionally, but. And initially, did were, did most of your river trips involve like whitewater stuff? Or oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so when I when I started guiding, um, you know, the picking up you know picking up the oar strokes for a drift boat and a raft was just a little bit of a different experience because you're used to just forward rowing the entire time and rowing for anglers is a little bit of a different story. So, uh, but yeah, my my background has just been in that in in whitewater and that's why I like to you know, guide and some of the whitewater stuff because it just adds that element of, of extra excitement and there's a lot of big fish where there's whitewater too. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I agree with you. Well, you know, one of my favorite times of year around here is is um, just right at post runoff when the rivers are high and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you can throw a big, a big salmon fly or a big stone fly and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can do 20 miles in, in half a day pretty easily and it comes at you fast it's just super exciting really fun time really fun time to float around here yeah so was fishing always a, a part of your life uh you know i i did a little bit of um you know dunking worms when i was a kid um i didn't really fish you know seriously i didn't start fly fishing till gosh 1994 1995 so i was in my you know my early 20s at the time um i'd moved to colorado and for a job and every morning I rode my mountain bike over the Blue River in Silverthorne and I had a coworker that was that was a guide and I said wow that looks really cool and you know he gave me a rod and a reel and said you know just take it with you when you're out on when you're out driving around on you know during the job and try to pick it up and so I kind of taught myself how to do it um, and I think that was a good foundation for teaching others because when you start with zero knowledge about something it helps you establish a a skill set and understanding of how the process works. So, um, yeah, I didn't start until a little bit later in life, but, and I don't even remember if that was right around the time when the movie came out. Um, but I don't really know that I, I can't say that, you know, culture influenced my decision to start fly fishing. I think it was just another way to make a connection with the water. Cool. So then, uh, then you became a, a guide in Colorado. Uh, no, I didn't start guiding actually until, um, you know, I moved up to, back home to Washington state. Um, you know, before that it's, it's a common story. I mean, I'm not the only fly fishing guide out there with the master's degree and probably has some corporate experience, but, um, <laughs> uh, I worked in the corporate world for quite some time in learning and development and training and, um, different aspects and just got, you know, just got to that point where I wanted something different for where I was at the time personally and professionally and, and, um, started a guide service and, did that for 10 years. So, and so initially you were based in Washington. Yeah. Uh, on the Yakima river in central Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, I've never fished that river. I, I was just, um, fishing with an old friend of mine from, from Bend the other day. And he had lived in Ellensburg for a, for a uh-huh. period of time after college. And, and, um, yeah, he invited me over there several times and I, I just never made it over there. I was still in Oregon at the time. And, um, I wish I would have, it sounds like it's, um, uh, a really neat stream and kind of busy now, like everywhere, but <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's got a, a lot of, um, interesting stretches of water. Um, it faces a lot of the issues that every river in the West is facing right now. I mean, overuse and conservation issues with species and, uh, demands for irrigation water. And, um, you know, right now it's kind of one of those anomalies that, it's got a lot of cold water um, because of the good snow season that um, that the area had. But in some years, 
like within the, you know, the first couple of years I started guiding, we were, we were dealing with drought and, um, fire and all kinds of issues. And that's actually what kind of sparked my desire to get into, you know, conservation work. And I looked around and there was none of my peers, um, that were guiding that were engaged at all in, in the conservation issues that were affecting the fishery. So, um, myself along with a couple other guys just started doing some brainstorming and um we created a we started a, a trout unlimited chapter uh focused on the headwaters of the river and protecting west slope cutthroat so uh yeah it's still oh, going very cool yeah it's still going today um i mean did did a lot of really really cool stuff for that fishery um you know in terms of raising awareness about the issues that were facing it in the in the competitive world of demanding for resources you know the area is growing with housing and people and businesses moving in and that fishery just kind of keeps chugging along but it's got its issues and everybody needs to be engaged in their local home water to to figure out what they can do to protect the you know protect what they love yeah no doubt um at what point did you move to montana oh just about a year ago (laughs) oh really oh okay yeah it had been yeah it had been a goal for a long time um my daughter went to school out here at um um, so we just kind of followed her out here. Um, but you know, when the pandemic hit and I mean, I've, I've always worked remotely with Sawyer. Um, but when the pandemic hit, my wife was able to, um, work remotely. And so we just kind of looked around at what was happening with the housing market and, um, said, you know, let's, let's go. We've talked about doing this for a long time. So let's just go fulfill our dream and, and move out to Montana. So we're just past a, a year, um, uh, living here and yeah, loving it. Well, you picked a, a good little community to move to. I won't disclose the name of it, um, but um, yeah, we recently purchased a little cabin up there as well mm-hmm. um, that we've been, you know, renting out um, with a long-term goal of, of uh, you know, just keeping it for ourselves eventually, hopefully. But uh, yeah, it's really a, a nice place up there on the lake. Super yeah. cool. Love yeah. it. And you also um, are a ski instructor in the wintertime, right? Yeah, you know, I did it for I did it for a season uh, last year at the local hill, and you know, quite honestly, I thought there were a lot of things from guiding that I could transfer over in terms of teaching people, um, but it was just a completely different beast on skis. <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting to to do that for a season. So you you're probably not going to continue with that. You know, I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I faced probably the same thing that everybody faces when they when they start something new is, um, you know, you're the, you're the newbie. Uh, so you get all of the, you know, you get all the folks that are, have never, ever gone and <laughs> you probably get some of the problem children and, uh, you know, just to kind of see how mentally tough you are in the whole scenario. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know that I really want to do this. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. That's, I've, taken, that, that's... I've taken a few steps in life to get to a point. I don't know that I want to start all over again, <laughs> but sometimes that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I've thought about trying to do that a little bit myself. And I, I used to be a, an Alpine ski coach here in mm-hmm. Missoula. Um, you know, but those were racers and, and yeah. most of those kids were better skiers than I was. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was up at the Hill this winter and, you know, kind of watching that, that whole process. And I was like, nah, no, thanks. I, I, I don't think that's for me at this point in my life. Well, and I, and I think it's, it's just a, a very good, I guess, crux of what happened, you know, what last year was and the year before that was and, and the growth of what's happening in 
the outdoor industry, not just in in floating or, or fishing. Everybody wanted to get outside. And, uh, you know, if you were a Boy Scout, um, you know, that motto of be prepared, a lot of people just aren't prepared for what it means to, to be active in the outdoors. They don't understand the requirements for gear. They don't understand, uh, you know, in, interacting with the weather, uh, interacting with other people while they're, while they're doing this. You know, so I'd get I'd right. get little kids that come out with their parents and have n- no gloves, no goggles, no hats, uh, you know, equipment that was ill fitting. It's like you're just not going to have a good time if you're not prepared to do this. And that's that's probably my you know, the biggest thing is that, um, you know, we've got lots and lots of new people coming into the outdoors, whether, you know, no matter what the no matter what the discipline is. Um, and there's sort of this the, there's this mentality of. Well, if I if I fail or I do this wrong, I can just hit the reset button like I can in the video game and just start all over. And that's just not the case. No. And, you know, we're seeing that a lot in fly fishing, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, um, and it's it's funny, like I feel now like a lot of days I, I feel like it's my first guide season because yeah. you know, here I here I've got newbies again, which I haven't had to guide a lot of newbies over the last several years. And um, yeah. In reference to kind of what you just said, uh, you know, this kid the other day hops in the boat. He's got cotton sweatpants on, cotton shirt, no sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It falls out of the boat right out of the gate, not out of the boat, but, you know, went went to go relieve himself on the shoreline, slipped, fell in, and now he's soaked head to toe. And, yeah. uh, you know, I set him up in fleece and, and gave him glasses and I'm like, okay, um, you know, this, this is how we dress for this, this particular activity. But, yeah. uh, yeah, there, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, novice activity out there right now for sure. Yeah. Well, and <clears throat> I was on, uh, I was on one of the upper stretches of the river, uh, last weekend, uh, with a good friend of mine and that we've, we've had lots of river trips together on and, um, just watched a couple of guide boats come in and, you know, back in and, their clients got off and we're standing around and, and talking. And I, I heard a lot of the, you know, a lot of the familiar questions, like how do we get back here at the beginning, at the end of the day? <laughs> yeah. That old, that old, that, that old thing, that you know? Thing, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I, I just, I, I wanted to just kind of, um, because I, I still work closely with, um, you know, with guides and not only what I do for Sawyer, but also with the guide relief program, which is a, a new organization that started up um, last year. Um, you know, really focused on the overall health and well-being of Montana's guide, Montana's guide community. Um, so I kind of want to just, you know, take a, um, you know, an outside look at what was still happening with the daily interaction of what happens when people get on the water. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to hear some of those old cliches and I'm going to watch a process. I just kind of want to see, you know, what, what guides are doing these days in terms of new people coming on the water. And it was, you know, I'm like, watch, he's good. You know, that, that guide is going to ask those people, you know, so have you ever played golf or, you know, anything like that? Just to kind of get a, a good understanding of, you know, what, what they, they were going to be dealing with that day. And sure enough, <laughs> first thing, you know, trying to get a baseline for the experience for the day. And I, I think yeah. in, in, our, in our aspects and, you know, most aspects of our lives, understanding what that baseline is, um, is, is critical, but it was... Yeah, it was just kind of humorous to, to hear that's exactly what's still happening these days, which is which is good. 
Yep, yep. That's uh, that's definitely been my uh, my life over the last couple of months for sure. <laughs> it's been a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, my you know my growing up, my dad and his cronies uh, they ran the old um, the old Sawyer smokers, mm-hmm. um, and then I I had I remember my first pair of Sawyers. I had Sawyer lights. Um, and presumably because they were better for my health than the, than the straight smokers. Right. <laughs> but uh, now I, I'm lucky enough to own a pair of the, the V lamb shoal cut square tops, mm-hmm, which are mm-hmm. awesome oars. Um, That's what I'm rowing this summer. Are, yeah. I, I got mine last year. Um, yeah. And you know, they're, they're the choice of most of the guides around here. Um, can you tell me about the design and the materials used in those oars? Uh, well, the, the square top specifically, um, is a is a douglas fir product so um you know that that wood comes to to the factory um you know pre-cut into uh you know individual lengths of of product that the you know the guys the experts there at the factory will will grade so i mean think about a 50 foot long you know semi-trailer stacked i don't know six or seven feet tall with just skids and skids and skids of of wood um, they'll use a forklift to get it off the truck and they'll go by, they'll go through it piece by piece, grading it for quality. Um, you know, the, the best stuff they'll use for square tops, the stuff that gets a B grade or a C grade might be used for handles or it might be used for paddles that have a shorter piece. Um, but everything starts as, you know, as a raw product, uh, that has to be dried and cured and sanded and turned on a lathe and rested and then shaped sanded put into a varnish room um you know the the various components that that com- comprise the ore shaft whether it's got a rope wrapper or, or a pro tip around the the uh, perimeter of the blade um you know those are all those are all steps that, that take place it takes about 14 days to make a square top from the point that it started to the time that it's um that it's cured if everything goes perfect you know, <laughs> it, right. it takes it. Everything's handmade, so it just takes some time to do this. But the the square top is a is a dug fir product, and that wood um, it's got it's lightweight. Um, it's got a good amount of um, flex to it naturally, um, and we're able to shape it in ways that um, makes that ore a performance tool versus just a utility tool. Whereas a you know a fiberglass shaft or um, it's just going to be a, a tube. That you put a blade on and it doesn't perform the same way that a that a square top does so this this the invention of the square top um you know isn't sawyer's you know the the square end of an ore is something that's been around for a long time but um you know the, the ability to tune that ore shaft if you will to a specific purpose and for a specific uh specific performance aspect is really what's been unique to that product and the reason why so many guides um go with that ore is um man it's just it just makes your day on the water so much easier yeah no doubt they're super light uh very tough and um yeah the shape of the blade you just get a you get really uh you know good draw good pull mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. what what's the v-lam uh in reference to uh, so the, the VLAM is just kind of a, you know, a, a moniker for, um, you know, not only, not only the, the look of the product, um, but also that it's a, um, that it's a wood blade. So it's got a little bit of, it's got some different woods in the blade itself. Every, you know, every square top that we make has a, a wood blade, but not all of them have the different, 
different kinds of wood in the blade. And that's what makes the VLAM so light and flexible is that it's a little bit more of a flexible ore blade, um, you know, made of different types of wood. Um, and it doesn't have that, um, that carbon fiber overlay on it that gives it some stiffness and some, a little bit more durability. Um, so it's, um, people ask about, you know, what, what ore is best for them and, you know, what, we're, we're really down to the point like fly rod manufacturers were a while ago about talking about a flex profile. Um, and the, the, the VLAM is, you know, probably one of our lightest feeling ores that we have because of, um, the way that it's constructed, but it's got a really, uh, really nice flex to it. Um, it just, it's very easy to row, um, very easy on the, on the shoulders and the elbows. And, um, it just makes rowing any boat a, a real pleasure. And, and the shoal cut, um, just refers to the design of the blade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other analogy I'll use is that a shoal cut, um, is more like a spoon in the water versus a knife blade. Cause the traditional whitewater or paddle, um, you know, shape is sort of that rounded rectangular shape, which is great for whitewater because you're using that for different purposes. Well, when we started using more, you know, oars more for controlling drift boats and, you know, as the evolution of the drift boat, um, has come along, you've got boat builders that are, that are thinking about the types of things that they want to be able to do on them and they want their owners to do on them. And then they're incorporating that, that ore type into the equation. So we're really talking about, you know, combining just like a ski boot and a, and a binding and a ski. We now have people that are, that are choosing specific ores based off of a performance profile of a boat and where they're going to use it. Um, so it, it's just, you know, it's, you can really choose an ore for your boat and the type of water that you're going to flow and you can switch them out when you change places. So, but that shoal cut is really, it's really designed to be like a spoon at the end of your, of the ore shaft that helps you scoop and push more water um, in lower water than it does a traditional uh, blade shape. Right, which has been uh, very handy of late. Yeah, I use those oars both for the raft and the drift boat. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I used to have two different sets, but I like them so much um, and they're so versatile that uh, they're the, the only ones I'm running right now. And uh, yeah, I just love them, man. They're great. Yeah, and I, and I used you know, I use my shoal cuts for, for whitewater trips, Middle Fork of the Salmon, uh, Selway, you know, a lot of big multi-day trips where people are using traditional oars and, you know, because they're, they're pushing downstream. Well, you start incorporating fishing into a river trip and now you need an oar that's going to help you do what you need to do between the rapids, but also in the rapids as well. So you see a lot more people moving over to a shoal cut for whitewater. Um, because the boat is capable of doing the, the types of performance that you want the oar to be able to help you do. Right, and they, they really help you ferry too, you know, which yep. which we do a lot of um, when you're going bank to bank guiding around here. Yeah, yeah. And now a brief message from our sponsors. Flylab Reels provides silky smooth disc drags at a click and fall price. Paired with Mid-Arbor Spool for quick line retrieval, the Flylab family of fishing reels is the best value on the river. With four models to choose from, priced from $99 to $249, you won't find these reels anywhere other than the local CD dealer or at cd-fishing.us. And remember to go fishing. And are those uh, still made in Southern Oregon? Yeah, uh, I was just at the factory last week, um, Talent, Oregon, which is just a real small town on I-5, about 20 miles north of the California border on the north side. Um, 
yeah, I mean, last September, um, you know, there was a huge wildfire that swept through town. And um, I remember getting a phone call from uh, Aaron, uh, who was the sales manager for the southern U.S. and my partner there. Um, he's like, hey, just a heads up, uh, you know, talent's on fire and we're evacuating the factory. And, um, you know, we'll give you a call. We figure out what's going on. So for a few hours, it's like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I wonder if the factory's even still there. Jeez. Um, and you know, I saw pictures and videos and we have a, there's a video about what happened on, on our website. And, um, you know, I was just there last week and I got into town. And I was like, it was, uh, uh, it made me shake my head about how widespread the devastation and how just massive it was. I mean, banks on, you know, a bank and a grocery store on one side of the road burned to the ground. And on the other side of the road, you know, these, um, big houses, and then right next to that big house, there was a, a coffee stand that burned down. So it was, um, and then and then you'd go for miles, and there'd be nothing but trailer parks that just burned to the ground. So it was, um, it was a apocalyptic. <laughs> wow! And that was the recent fire. Uh, that was September of last year. Oh, okay. Because they so, had another big fire down in Southern Oregon. I, I I believe it's still burning, but I think it may be. Yeah, all, that's that's a much, lot, a much a farther to the east, southeast you know. of Talent, maybe or something. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, flying in, flying into Medford, um, you know, from the time that I left uh, Glacier International and arrived all the way to Medford, I, there was nothing but smoke in the air the entire time. Wow, crazy! Yeah. Has yeah. have all these fires affected the supply of the of the wood that you guys use in those ores? Um, I, I wouldn't say that the fire has affected um, the supply uh, or where we get product. I think it certainly has. Um, added a layer of complexity to the logistics of, of shipping, um, things. And, um, you know, starting, I, you know, I guess starting last April, April of 2020 is, is really when, um, things started going, um, sideways in terms of the demand for product, you know, because last March we had a lot of customers that were, that thought that no one was going to be able to go outside. No one was going to be able to recreate. No one was going to go on river trips. No one was going to float. And so they canceled all their orders. Um, and then it was like a snap of fingers and people figured, oh, people do want to go outside. People are going to do these things. And so we had to restart things. So they, they, the factory has not stopped working seven days a week since April of 2020, trying to keep up with the demand of what's happened for paddles and oars and for water products. And um, yeah, I, I don't see any, I don't see any relief on the horizon. <laughs> No, no, the opposite. Yeah. The opposite happened. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, to, yeah, to the surprise of most of us. Yeah, I think the fires are just sort of a, um, you know, it's something that's happening on the periphery, but it certainly does affect, I think, um, I think it probably is, is more of a mental thing than it is anything. It's just, um, you know, people want to go outside, but they're don't want to sit outside, you know, all day in the smoke. It's It's not fun. No, it's not. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of Sawyer Ores? Yeah. Um, so this was a company that was started by Ralph Sawyer uh, back in the late 60s. Um, Ralph was a, a fellow Michigander like myself. I was born in Michigan. Um, but his background was in canoe racing. Um, so he built, um, you know, he built products for doing that. And then when he finished his career, he moved out to, moved out to Oregon and um, hooked up with um, the folks from Willie's. 
um, who you know wanted to wanted to see some products um, made out of wood um, for their aluminum boats. And so Ralph started making oars for the folks at Willie's um, out of Northern White Ash, and that's where the sm- that's where the kind of the smoker brand. Um, you know, kind of folds into the story in, in the early 80s. But um, yeah, he started making oars for, for drift boat, you know, the Mackenzie style drift boat folks on the, in Oregon back in the late 60s. And, you know, throughout the years, it has have had a couple of different ownership groups. Um, but yeah, we're just celebrating, oh gosh, 50, 54 years in existence as a company. So uh, it's been around for a long time. Um, you know, certainly materials have changed and with the advent of carbon fiber and incorporating that into into uh, into ores it, it's really become um, you know a a product and a brand that is is known for the performance aspect of its product it's not just a like I said a utilitary tool it's not just a tube with the blade on it it's it's something that people are realizing that oh I, I can have some performance with with what I'm rowing and, and have a better time on the water so uh, yeah it's um, it's been a pleasure to work with Sawyer for you know as a um, as a representative and as a manager for the company for the last oh, three years. But I, I worked with Zach and the crew for, you know, while I was guiding it as an ambassador and, and helping with demos and stuff like that. So cool. And the, the rise in the popularity of, uh, of up paddle boarding kind of created a whole new market for you guys too, probably. Huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, we make, you know, we make a fairly good line of, of up paddle board paddles. Um, you know, you'll find some of the same, Componentry, carbon fiber, wood, um, in in those products. Um, you know, I started paddleboarding a few years ago as well, and really enjoy that aspect of of being on the water with with that board. And um, yeah, if it's if it floats, um, you know, and it uh, we we make a paddle or or for it. Yeah, I'm just getting ready to to head to your uh, your home waters. I've I've never fished in Michigan, and mm. um, I'm going to head out there later this week, hopefully, and take mm. my stand up paddleboard and, and go poke around out there. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. That's what's kind of cool about those that you can fold them up and take them with you. <laughs> oh, they're so versatile. Yeah. I mean, you know, the one I have like a lot of them, um, folds into a backpack Yeah, and, uh, yeah, you can hike it into lakes. Uh, I've got a buddy that takes his, he's got it set up and he's got some sort of, you know, special or design that he came up with so he can take it as a carry on. And, mm. uh, you know, takes his to, to Christmas Island and the Bahamas and, mm. and, uh, all over the place. So yeah, they're very cool. Yeah. That's a very versatile, uh, very versatile fishing vessel. Yeah. They're fun to have along on, on river trips as well. We just strap ours to the back of the raft and, um, you know, ride it through the class one stuff and class two stuff. And it's great to play on at camp when you get to camp early and, um, yeah, they're, they're fun. Awesome. So, um, in addition to your, uh, your role with, uh, with, with Sawyer, um, can you tell me a little more about the guide relief program? I know very little of that. Yeah. So, um, the guide relief program, uh, was started, uh, gosh, right when the pandemic hit last year, because, um, so Molly and Kinsley, um, both work in the industry. Kinsley's a guide and, and Molly uh, works with the Sweetwater Fly Shop over there in Livingston. Um, it was created during during the very starting you know phases of, of COVID. And the the basis of it is if you look around at um, you know the independent contractors um, in this state, 
have very little um, support in terms of what's available to them, um, whether it's mental health, physical health, insurance, um, financial aspects of, of doing their job. You know, they're basically running their own businesses, which as an entrepreneur I've done, but not everybody has that acumen, you know, that's required to really be successful at it. Um, but it was really, that's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, it was really kind of designed, you know, there's 1800 fly fishing guides in the state of Montana. It was really designed to help them navigate some of the resources that were available to them in terms of, um, unemployment insurance and grants and loans, um, mental health services, um, that, you know, just weren't, those dots weren't being able to be connected by, you know, by these, by these folks that are out on the water because it's just not part of, you know, what their world was, but now, now it is. So, um, you know, that one of the very, one of the very, you know, few groups of people that, um, you know, an independent contractor, you don't get unemployment insurance if you can't work because of fires or illness or anything like that. So, um, yeah, the, a big part of it is kind of folding in, um, advocacy work, um, conservation work, um, you know, but a big part of it is just sort of that, um, that whole aspect of, of providing a suite of resources for, uh, these professionals that, um, do so much for their local communities, but also for contribute to the, you know, to the, the massive economic, um, you know, benefit that fly fishing and guiding provides to this state. So there just wasn't really a safety net for them now. And now that there is. Very cool. And this, this was started by uh, these two females, Molly and Kinsley, you said? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So Kinsley guides out of the Missoula area. She goes all over the Northwest. Oh um, yeah. I know yeah, her. Kinsley sure. Scott, yeah. 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 Um, it's really a great program. Um, you know, and, and when Molly, you know, when Molly asked me to, to get engaged with, you know, with this program, I was like, you know, I want to stay connected to the guide community. It, it makes sense, you know, because I work with Sawyer and, and I have experience guiding, you know, how's this all going to work? And, and, you know, what really is the purpose here? And she asked me to, she asked me to actually be, you know, the, the chair of this board. I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> okay, let's, let's see what we can do with this. So um, yeah, it's, it's really a great program. They, they did so much legwork to get this thing going. Um, and, you know, there's, um, there was lots of hurdles to overcome from, you know, both internally and externally. I mean, trying to figure out how to start a, a support organization during a pandemic was challenging in its own, but also having to navigate the, the very complex, you know, sort of, uh, and I hate to say it, but, you know, fly fishing and outfitting in this state um, can get political. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, very, and very territorial, you know, and very territorial. No doubt. Uh, I feel fortunate in Missoula. Um, I, there's definitely some of that that goes on. Um, but I feel like uh, the guide community around here is fairly unified uh, relative to the other guide communities that I've that I've worked in. Well, and, and you, you really, I mean, you know, big picture, you really have to be because you may depend on that person to save your ass in a very, you know, a, a very complex situation. And you'd you know, I would assume that everyone would do it for a fellow human being, but guides sort of have this, you know, this extra responsibility when they're on the water that if they see something, they've got to do something. And I, I can't, you know, on the, on both hands, I can, I can count the number of times I've had to rescue, you know, recreational floaters that were drowning in the river because they just weren't prepared to go into the water and got to tell the clients, bring your rods in. We got to go rescue that person that's drowning. And they're like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. We got to, we got to go rescue that person that's in the river that's drowning. So hold on. 
Yeah, I had, um, you mentioned the, uh, the Willy boats and, uh, my dad bought a used Willy boat and I think it was 1981 or 1982. Um, so it was one of the first, um, wide bottom guide model willies that, that they had produced. Mm. And, uh, and I borrowed it, uh, for my maiden voyage down the Mackenzie. And, um, this was probably in the early nineties. I'm guessing I was probably 17, 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'd run it with my dad several times. He made it look pretty simple. Um, I'm sure you've probably run that river before. And, um, that rapid in there, uh, Martin's rapid. So I pulled over to scout that and, you know, I'm looking at it for the longest time and I, I'm reading the guidebook and I just, I don't see a line in there. And, uh, you know, I finally just decide, all right, I'm going to go for it and, and, and do my worst. And, uh, and there was a, there's a big suck hole in there and, uh, and it caught my right oar and it pulled my right oar out of the lock and I'm going back into the suck hole and, you know, surely we're going to sink the boat. It's like panic time. And, and right then the oar came up out of that back eddy and I reached over and it landed in my hand. The yeah. grip landed in my hand and I pulled it in there, put it back in the lock and spun out of there and, and made it through miraculously. Uh, what's, what's one of your close calls on the river? I'm sure you've got tons. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, lots of them. I, I ran the, um, I ran the Selway a couple of years ago. Um, I got invited on a trip. Um, I got a phone call like on a Friday afternoon, you know, got a call. Hey, can you, you want to run the Selway? You need to be at the put in next Wednesday. And I'm like, Oh crap, I, I got to find somebody to do this with, you know, got to the, got to the put in and read some of the guidebooks and looked at all the, you know, looked at all the rapids. And I was just thinking about, um, uh, you know, ladle, which is, which is one of the huge rapids on this river. And depending on the flow, you know, there's different lines, of course, to run anything. Um, and the crew that I was with, they were all experienced whitewater folks and everybody was, you know, everybody was good, but you know, we showed up at the, we showed up, showed up at the put in my buddy, Eric and I, and everybody had helmets with them. I'm like, helmets, why do you guys have helmets? <laughs> <laughs> and it became pretty apparent why the, everybody was wearing helmets, you know, when we got to these rapids, cause they're, they're pretty gnar. So um, you know, before you run, before you run ladle, it's, it's a lot of the stuff on the subway you, you do need to scout. Um, so before you run ladle, you've got to do like a two and a half mile, um, scout, you know, walk down to the rapid and see what's going on. And so there was a couple of groups in front of us and, um, you know, every, you know, a couple of people chose, um, the same line, a couple of people chose the chicken route, which is, you know, stay right. And a couple of, couple of folks, uh, you know, flip their boats. I'm going into it. I was like, Oh crap. This, um, but they took some weird lines. So, um, yeah, we chose, we chose a line that, um, you know, started, started kind of river, right. And then went right towards the gut of it, you know, you know, ferried left as far as we could and just really kind of played pinball through this thing. It turned out to be a really fun, a really fun line. Um, but the, the risk and the consequence was, uh, was there. Um, you know, there's all kinds of videos about ladle on the subway. Um, if you Google it and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a hairy one and, um, got through that one just fine. And then, you know, thought, okay, that's, we can do this. And then, you know, um, a couple of rapids later, um, you know, popped an oar lock, lost an oar, 
in the next one and right in the middle of a class four and had to you know pull an orlock out of my um, out of my dry box um, within you know 15 seconds of time it felt like mid action yeah it felt like three seconds but it actually about 15 seconds but you know reach up grab an, an, a spare orlock out of the out of the dry box stick it in the you know stick it in the frame put the split ring on it um, you know, get the spare off the side of the boat and then go through another class four. And it's just like, holy, <laughs> these things come at you pretty fast, but, um, yeah. And that's not something that you would, you would generally practice, um, <laughs> but you yeah, should, I mean, you, you should. should, I guess. Yeah. yeah, you should, you should. Um, and so that's actually, you know, um, whenever I can, and I think this is good advice to give anybody that goes in the water is whenever you can try to put yourself into increasingly you know, challenging situations um, that you can recover from so that when you, when they happen to you in real time and, and fast, um, you have some muscle memory, so to speak, about what to do, you know, which side of the boat do I go on? You know, do I high side? Do I low side? Um, do I grab the oar? You know, do I jump out of the boat? <laughs> those, right. Those kinds of things. Yeah. That's, um, you know, I, I took a swift water rescue course many years ago and, and uh, I'm going to, I'm going to refresh myself on that here this next year. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just, and the, you know, little things like that. Um, yeah. Just taking the time to practice putting, getting your spare oar off the side of the boat and drop it in the locks. Like um, yeah, that, that can save your life. A lot of us get too complacent out there. Um, and that goes with a lot of things. I mean um, you know, we live in bear country and you know, um, where we you know where we're at there's yeah, there's really nothing else around us so if you know uh we gotta gotta be mindful of how we store our food um you know where we walk at night <laughs> how much noise we make um, right it's all it's all around us you can't just take a casual stroll at night up here without having bear spray and you know, sometimes a sidearm <laughs> right yeah well uh derek what's the best way for people to learn more about Sawyer roars um, so paddlesandores.com is the product website. Um, you know, I get a lot of phone calls about, you know, how much does this ore weigh? You know, what is, how do I put these things together? What's the best ore for me? And paddlesandores.com is really a, a great resource. Most of what you'll find is, you know, product descriptions, um, you know, length, materials they're made of, um, you know, best application sort of a description for them. But really, if you dig a little bit deeper, um, we've tried to do a really good job of giving people, um, not just the information, but the application and, um, how you might use them or, um, uh, work with them. So for example, if you need to, um, you know, rewrap your oars with rope, we've got a video on how to do that. Um, if you need to put new grips on your oars, um, we've got a video on how to do that. So we're really trying to expand, um, you know, that, the conversation, in an online way because people get their information that way these days, you know, Hey, if you need to know how to do something, Google it. And sure enough, we, we've got that, you know, there, whether it's the form of a video or an audio file or a link to something else. Um, you know, a lot of these questions you can sort of, you can answer, um, by just looking at the website and then, you know, honestly, a, a great resource for finding out more products is that, you know, ask somebody that rose them because there is a, there is a certain level of, um, uh, fanaticism to people that rose Sawyers and they can tell you all about them. Yeah. And, uh, and for God's sakes, don't leave your square tops in your truck or in your boat. Um, I think next to gravel bikes, that's the number one, uh, hijacked item 
in, in our area. <laughs> well, they're in such high demand these days that, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's amazing. Uh, you know, you go out to, you know, a lot of the river towns um, in the state and you drive through, you know, neighborhoods and you know, boats are just laying out unlocked, you know, um, oars are laying in boats, you know, unsecured. Yeti and, coolers. Yeti coolers. And, you know, the opportunity to, to do bad things is certainly there. So you have to trust in the best intentions of your fellow human beings. But yeah, I mean, you drive by a, you drive by a drift boat and there's, you know, 2000 bucks worth of gear that is very, uh, very easily taken. It's, uh, yeah, it amazes me sometimes, but yeah, well, I, I put mine uh, under lock and key every night. Yeah. <laughs> Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.